And that day, our both our lives, and many other people's lives changed forever. Um, he suffered a, a traumatic brain injury. Uh, both hemispheres of his brain were damaged, all the lobes and his brain stem. Uh, so yeah, my life has been completely different ever since that day. And that was 11 and a half years ago. Okay, hi folks, and welcome to the Undo Anxiety Podcast. I'm Dr. John Duffy. I will be your host today as always. Um, and as always, I appreciate you protecting some time for myself and my guests. Um, we call this thing Undo Anxiety because in the end, we really believe, and I truly believe that through the sharing of stories and ideas, we feel less alone and um, we undo, unravel, and eradicate some of the undue anxiety that I think we all suffer um, unnecessarily, at least some of the time. And, um, and my guests have been so generous in, in, in sharing and telling their stories. And, um, and to that end, I am thrilled to be talking uh, via Skype with Mark Gablowski. Mark, welcome to the podcast. Well, thanks for having me on, Dr. John. I really appreciate it. I'm, thrilled I'm excited to be here. I'm thrilled you're here. So here's what I know about you, Mark. Mark, you are a husband. You're a father. You are a career martial artist. You've worked with thousands of people. I, I would love for you to teach me a trick or two because I've never, never <laughs> tried that, and I would love to give that a shot. And you're a teacher, and you are a podcaster on top of all of that. Um, am I missing anything uh, that, that's key? You know what? I'm about to uh, publish my first book as well. So, congratulations it. there. Um, and, and any any tease you can give us about the first book? You know, it's about um, <laughs> in in some ways, a lot of ways, it's about dealing with um, you know some trauma and some anxieties and how to overcome those things and turn them into strengths. Yeah, yeah, and um, uh, that sounds like the right book, and you sound like the right guy to be writing it because I know you've. Uh, You've been through some some anxiety-inducing, traumatic things in your life, um, and you've been generous enough to offer to uh, to share that with uh, myself and some of my listeners. Do you mind uh, Do you mind getting started? Just telling us a little bit about the story that brought you here. Sure, I'd be happy to. Um, you know, I growing up, I I grew up in a, a home that was um, violent. Um, there was um, you know, it, it just wasn't a happy place to be. And, uh, I had a lot of questions as a child growing up due to that, a lot of confusion. Mm -hmm. I did not understand why things were the way they were. And, um, that created a lot of anxiety in my life. And, uh, as I grew older, some acting out, there was, uh, some sexual abuse as a child as well. Um, and so lots of confusion as a result of those things. So, um, as I got older and I, I pursued things that were, um, I guess, tried to fill in the gaps of the, the perceived weaknesses I, I saw in myself. And so, mm -hmm. you know, I, um, I participated in team sports because I wanted to feel strong and athletic. I uh, participated in scouting because I was looking for a code to live by. Eventually, I joined the military because, again, I wanted to, um, you know, protect because I've had this sense that I'd never felt protected. And then eventually I, I studied the martial arts and all of those things were designed to help me deal with, um, you know, the stuff that started in my childhood. Um, eventually 
Well, can, uh, I, can, can I cut you off for just a second here? Sure, so, please. So that's, uh, that already is a striking story. I mean, you know, um, you, you've, in your young, young life, you'd been through the worst of it, right? I mean, a violent household with so much confusion and anxiety, and, and, um, and I can imagine that that results in acting out. I work with a lot of um, teen and tween age kids, and, and, and if, they're, if they grow up in an unpredictable house of any kind, um, oftentimes there's, um, there's acting out. Uh, not always do I find that um, people find adaptive ways to manage some of the anxiety that they're, um, that's foist upon them at, at an early age. How did you know, like, okay, you know what, I'm going to turn to sports as opposed to drugs. I'm going to turn to the military as opposed to listlessness, you know? Um, how did you know you wanted to protect as opposed to kind of buckling under, you know, what was a difficult childhood? How, you know, where, where did the strength come from? Well, yeah, in, uh, in an effort to be completely honest, I, I played both sides of those coins. Ah. So I, you know, there was, there was, um, drugs, there was alcohol, um, there was, um, you know, sexual acting out. Mm -hmm. It was, I did those things that you would hope you wouldn't do, but there was, it wasn't really so conscious. I think it was like my subconscious was, I was looking for the stability, the security, um, this steadiness, um, uh, a moral code to live by. Um, I, I guess in the absence of having those things, I I felt drawn to them somehow. Yeah. You know, maybe maybe God created me that way. Maybe that's the way my personality came out. I don't know. I just when I was 12 years old, the the Kung Fu series came out, and that was back in the early 70s. And I remember watching that show every week. And from the first time I saw the show, I remember thinking. I want what he has. Yeah. He was he was so peaceful, but he, yet he was powerful. He was completely calm and centered and reasonable, yet he had the ability to protect himself and others and feeling you know, living in a situation where you had no security, uh, it was completely unpredictable, unpredictable, seemed arbitrary, decisions seemed arbitrary. Um, you know, looking for something that would anchor you or tether you to something strong uh, just seemed like a natural draw for me. Wow, that's beautifully put, Mark. And, and it's so interesting, isn't it, where, where inspiration comes from, right? So here's mm. the, this, this somewhat fictional <laughs> um, character, and you feel like, okay, that's, that gives me something to aim toward, right? There, there's, there's a grounded character who um, isn't drawn to violence, but is can be self-protective and can be protective of others and something about that resonated with you at a very young age that's uh that that's kind of cool it's a very impressive kind of um sense of awareness that you must have had um as a preteen. well i i don't know if it was awareness it was maybe born of uh fear or anxiety because i <laughs> I, I mean i totally i just lived in fear and um felt like I was walking on eggshells all the time. And, and that left me feeling just so uncertain about every day. Yeah. And I didn't like that feeling. I wanted stability and I wanted steadiness and I wanted strength. Yeah. Yeah. Boy, that's, uh, th those are, um, abundantly clear. And, and the, and the thing you added to that a moment ago was a moral code. Was that missing in your home as well? 
Yeah, definitely. Um, you know, I remember as a kid, I, you know, I just loved my dad. I loved my mother too, but I was like, I just wanted to be with my dad 24 seven. And, mm-hmm. and that didn't play out. It was a working class family. He literally worked seven days a week. Um, and I looked up to him and there was a point in my life where I realized, well, I mean, there was daily expressions of this disconnect of a moral code yeah. of being there for your family. I, like in my gut, I thought, I would often think to myself, why are things this way? There's got to be a better way. I don't understand. I love my father so much. I don't, I didn't understand why he didn't, you know, want to be connected with me or my siblings. It wasn't just me. It was right. Right. Um, so, um, that moral code, I thought, and again, I don't understand why, but I felt like a moral code would again, give me direction. I always wanted to know what, like, what is the right direction to walk in? What is the right choice to make? Um, and I'm not a particular, you know, I'm not, I don't want to come across like I'm some sort of saint cause I'm not, right. <laughs> not in the least. <laughs> I don't know if any of us really in the end are, are saints, but I can see where you're, where you're drawn towards something meaningful, um, and, and moral. And, um, and for us guys, we, you know, our primary role models are our dads. And uh, if we don't have access to them, um, then I think we have to go seeking that out elsewhere, you know. And, um, and sometimes that can lead a, a young man into enormous trouble. Um, and sometimes it can lead him to the right mentor or the right character or just the right person that kind of drives him in, in at least somewhat the right direction. Yeah, I totally agree with that. And I think that's a huge, huge issue that all men can step into. And, um, you know, if they're listening to this, um, you know, take a step back and really, really understand that your, your kids are looking up to you in a big and powerful way. And you are their primary example of what it means to be a man or a father. Um, and whether it's a, a son or daughter, you know, I don't know. For me, it's like a sacred responsibility, uh, raising kids. Maybe it's because I felt like there was a gap in my own upbringing, but we have so much power and the ability to influence them in such a powerful way and, and, and in good, uh, directions, uh, that benefit themselves and, and the, the whole world. But, um, we got to take it seriously. And, and I think the first step is to understand they're watching us all the time and we're setting an example all the time. So, you know, we got to try and do the best that we possibly can. Amen to that, Mark. And, you know, um, I encourage people to rewind the last minute and listen to that a couple of times because there's some, a, a lot of wisdom in that, you know, um, uh, our kids are watching no matter what it is we're doing, what it is we're not doing. We are modeling constantly. And if we're, kidding ourselves into thinking they're not paying attention, um, we are sorely mistaken because they they are picking up on just about everything we say and do in their presence. And sometimes when we're not even there. So, right. um, yeah, so uh, I can appreciate that as a father yourself, you take this as a, a very sacred responsibility. Something shifted in a generation for you, huh? Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. So, so um, 
So I get how your your early life went, and you were drawn to to, to the military. And and um, uh, did you did you did you serve uh, overseas at all? Yes, I spent um, nine and a half years active duty with the uh, Air Force. Um, spent some time in California, and then I spent three years uh, overseas in the Republic of the Philippines, and then another year in Korea with some temporary duty. Uh, a couple other places and finished up my career in Nebraska. Yeah, and it was great. Well, thank you, first of all, for that work on behalf of myself and, and, and my listeners. I don't know how often um, we, we reach out and thank the people who, who risk uh, their lives so that we can have ours. Um, so I, I appreciate your work. Um, was that important time in your life? Was, was it galvanizing? You know, it absolutely was. Um, it happened to be the time where I actually started to study the martial arts. And, um, you know, there's a there's this responsibility of protection and uh, standing in the gap for others in the military. Um, that's not the only place you can do it. And I get that. And I appreciate service work of everybody in no matter what career they're in. I value people. Um, you know, just standing in the gap in, in whatever way they can for others. But yeah, it, it absolutely, for, uh, you know, solidified the work I wanted to do in an ongoing basis. I didn't necessarily want to stay in the military for 20 plus years, but it helped to anchor everything else that I was looking for and wanted in my own life and in turn wanted to provide for others. Yeah. And uh, while I was overseas, I, I started training in the martial arts. And so it was it was a perfect marriage. The, uh, the young people I've worked with who have chosen the military um, probably have a similar story um, to, to yours. And I'm always impressed with it because I worked with a young guy recently who um, is, uh, it looks like he's heading toward the Marines. And he knows that he lacks the discipline and structure and moral clarity in his life that he knows he needs and and something fundamental about him is certain of this and he knows he can pick it up there um did you have that kind of clarity going in or you know um did you feel like oh i just i don't i'm not sure what my options are and this seems like a good one you know it is probably a little bit of all of that i you know when i was uh, in my late teens and uh turning 20 it was actually uh the iran hostage era all right. And I, I thought we were going to war. Mm -hmm. I, I thought for sure we were going to war. And so um, that's why I joined the military at that time. It, but in the same breath, it was I wanted to um, get more discipline in my life. I wanted to feel stronger and I wanted to, um, you know, tap into that that kind of uh, code of the military of just being there for others. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's interesting. I, I noticed some themes, you know, protection, strength, stability, security. And you, you know, clearly, you know, you, you teach martial arts, you spent a decade in the military. Um, strength is, is a big part of your life. And yet you sound to me like um, a fairly gentle soul can these things live together in the same universe, you know, in the same body, um, or am I missing something? Well, um, what if I told you I hate violence? 
Okay, so that's interesting, right? Because I, I could easily say, well, wait a minute, man. You were in the military for so long and, you know, and you're in the martial arts. Isn't violence your stock and trade? You know, it, it's actually, from my perspective, it's the act. Actually, it's the opposite. You know, um, I teach self-defense and I joined the military not because I have some perceived enemy or right. uh, somebody, an axe to grind with some culture or country. Um, it's I do what I do because not because of the enemy in front of me, but because of the people behind me who I love. Well, that's that's why that's I do a it. Beautiful sentiment. I I I love that, and um, um, and I and I love that that um kind of uh, motto underneath. You know, I think all the martial arts, which is you know like the violence, though we're prepared for it, is our our last recourse. And and um, it sounds like that's the kind of man you are. Well, that's the kind of man I'm trying to be. And I, I wish I would have created this little quote and maybe some of your listeners have seen it. If not, I think it's tremendously valuable. Um, but it goes like this. It's better to be a warrior in a gardener in a garden than it is to be a gardener in a war. Mm. And so the, the idea that to be able to protect, provide, um, help, it's it's valuable and hopefully you never need to use it. Right. That, that's the whole idea. Um, and that's how I choose to see the world. Growing up, the, a person who violence was uh, used on, mm -hmm. that's why I hate it. And I, I can't stand the idea of other people um, being able to inflict violence on somebody or somebody not being able to protect themselves from violence. Yeah. Yeah, no, I, I, I can tell, I can hear it in your voice. Um, and yeah, so I can, I can, your, your statement about, you know, violence being your enemy in a way, right? That, that resonates loud and clear now. Yeah, absolutely. It's, um, if, if somebody's ever been the victim of violence, they can understand feeling helpless and, and you can't do something about it. And that, that is such a horrible feeling to be on the wrong end of that and feel powerless or hopeless in the moment. And, um, you know, that's why I do what I do and continue to do what I do. And uh, I, I hope people can walk away from this podcast. And I, I didn't realize we were going to talk so much about the martial arts, but um, <laughs> and that's fine. I love it. Yeah. Uh, the martial arts are not about violence. Um Unfortunately, there's violence and there's evil in the world and there's ugliness and darkness. And, you know, it, it just exists. Mm -hmm. Try to accept the fact that it does exist, but to not prepare yourself to be able to deal with it. You know, for me, that doesn't work. So got it. Got it. Well, I, I, I appreciate that treatise. And I didn't know we would talk about uh, the martial arts <laughs> so much either, but it's fascinating to hear from somebody who is clearly a master in, in, in that area. And um and what the you know what the themes underneath it all are because um, I don't think many of us know um, what that's all about. So I appreciate um, you sharing some of that with us. So your story from the military becomes even more interesting. What 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 happens um, you know uh, upon discharge? You know where what direction does your life take? You know I I started uh, I opened up a martial arts school and. Um, eventually figured out how to 
uh, run it successfully and uh, grew that and then uh, grew that to about 600 students. And then I uh, opened up a second school and grew that to about 200 students and um, had 800 students, had a whole bunch of staff and, um, you know, full time employees and paid health care and benefits for them. And and, you know, eventually my life took a little bit of a turn and uh, I had a son and. Uh, when my boy Joshua was three and a half years old, uh, he was in a hit and run car accident with two semi trucks. And that day, our both our lives and many other people's lives changed forever. Um, he suffered a, a traumatic brain injury. Uh, both hemispheres of his brain were damaged, all the lobes and his brain stem. Uh, so yeah, my life has been completely different ever since that day. And that was 11 and a half years ago. Got it. Got it. Um, you know, I, I feel like it's almost cruel to ask, but I'm, uh, you know, I'll ask and you can say no. Um, what was, what was it like to find out what were the, the, that day and the days following it like for you? You know, I, I was actually in a staff meeting at my school, one of my schools and, um, I got the phone call, um, and I, I normally don't ignore a phone call. It's mm-hmm. like the life; it was the lifeblood of the business back then. There wasn't really much of an internet, and but I ignored the phone call that day, and it rang a minute later, and it, it rang again a minute after that, and mm-hmm. another minute or two. It rang a fourth time, and I thought, "Wow, somebody's really, really trying to get a hold of me." So I went check the message, and there was a message there from my son's grandfather and it said that Joshua had been in and his mother had been in an accident and Josh was in the ICU and he was unconscious and that's all that I knew um I told my staff I needed to go I told them what I knew and I jumped in my truck and headed to the hospital and on the way you know I started to pray mm-hmm. like talk about anxiety oh. uh, you have no idea, no details, no doctor, no nothing. And anyhow, I just started to pray on the way. And um, like with every fiber of my being, every cell in my body. Um, and eventually I got to the hospital. It was a short ride, 15 minutes. Um, and I walked into the room and, you know, that, you know, every parent, I think, has those nightmares about, tragedy befalling their small children, you know, when they're completely right. I, you know, we've, we've imagined and those thoughts have come into our head, which also are anxiety producing. But, um, yeah, when I walked in that room, you know, he was on life support and, um, you know, there's just wires everywhere and monitors and alarms and nurses and doctors running around and those first few days nobody really knew anything um as a matter of fact it wasn't until like day four when the neurosurgeon came in and it was the first time i'd seen him and he he said to me well if your son lives the first seven days then he'll probably survive oh my god other than yeah and other than that, I can't tell you anything. Like I have no prognosis. If 
for his recovery. The neurologist had no prognosis. Nobody could say anything. And honestly, the look in everybody's eyes, mm-hmm. it was it was empty. It was like a black hole. And that's not a reflection on our healthcare system you know, our, or no, mm-hmm. it is not. Those doctors did anything and everything they could. The nurses, the orderlies, the CNAs, everybody was just everybody's doing everything. But there was just no obvious hope. Yeah. There was none. Yeah. And that must I, I can't imagine, you know, um, especially in light of the first part of our conversation here. Here's a guy who spent the first half of his life, you know, kind of just looking for ways to gain control in so many ways of, of his life. And here you walk into a room, you see your your helpless little dude um, and you don't know whether he's going to survive or not. I, I, I can, you know. I can only imagine, and I think most of us can only imagine what that's got to be like. You know, the the helplessness you must feel, um, knowing, okay, well, I can I can be you know Hercules, and I can't I can't change this situation right now. Yeah, that's the absolute truth. And helpless would be an understatement. I don't know another word to describe it, but the emptiness um, that a loved one feels for another loved one, whether it's your child or your spouse or parent or sibling. I mean, it doesn't matter when you care about somebody deeply and, and they are in a situation where you can't do anything like literally there's nothing you can do Yeah. to, to add, to, to affect a, a change, um, that you know of, uh, it is an absolutely helpless feeling. And I can hear in, in your voice that, you know, and I assume this is a story you've told many, many times. And it, it you know, it, it, this was more than a decade ago, but it, it feels it feels raw. It feels fresh. You know, do, do you still feel it even now? You know, I'm a whole whole lot different and a whole lot better at um, communicating or telling the story now. But, uh, you know, it's still. I mean, it still gets me. Uh, and those, when you think about those thoughts, I mean, it's as if you go back in time and you're standing there again. Yeah. So these kind of events, they they leave a mark on people. I, they leave a mark. They left a mark on me. I know mm-hmm. that. Um, so yeah, it, it's much. It's difficult, but it's much easier than it used to be as yeah. well. <laughs> and yeah. if I if I don't share the story then I can't share the hope that goes along with it or the strength that can be found in any of our struggles. So um, I feel compelled to tell the story. Well, you know, on behalf of myself and anybody else who's within earshot here, um, I'm already deeply appreciative to you for your generosity in sharing what is a deeply personal, um, horrific story um, so far. But I, I know that's that's not the end of your story. Um, so how, how do things progress? You know, um, Josh ended up, he was three and a half at the time. He yeah. spent, um, spent four months in the hospital and, uh, about three weeks after the accident, we moved from the ICU over to a rehabilitation hospital where, their goal was to facilitate as much recovery as they could as quickly as they could 
And so Josh ended up being classified comatose for uh, 34 days. Uh, and just a note, when at least my experience with coma, yeah. a coma patient, they don't wake up and ask for a piece of pizza. Right. right. It, it did not play out that way. <laughs> on day 34, uh, day 35, when they said he was no longer in a coma, he was no different than on day 34 or negligibly different from on day 15 or 20. That He's is still... something I think most of us don't know, Mark. You know, like, right, I, I picture it being like in a TV show where it's like um, you, you like he's waking up from a nap. Not at all, huh? Well, I think that happens for some people depending on the nature of their brain injury uh, and how it came about, you know, whether it was induced by inhaling some sort of gas, was, you know, poisonous gas, or if it was a tra traumatic injury or something. Right. Um, but... As a rule, people are not just waking up. No, right, not at all. Right. So, so, so it was. It took some time for him to seem even remotely conscious and vital and awake. Huh? Yeah, absolutely. Um, it was. You know, I remember after it was probably two months into the process where, um, you know, I could feel my hope kind of slipping, and. Um, and it was because I kept looking at this child, my yeah. son, yeah. laying there, and he couldn't even lift his head. He couldn't open his eyes on command. He couldn't swallow a drop of water. He couldn't move a, a single bone in his body, couldn't blink on command. I mean, nothing. And this wow. was two months into it. So, you know, it really kind of challenged my hope, my faith that I had that he would get better. And that kind of started to take me down, uh, you know, I don't want to say a dark road because I wasn't depressed, but I could feel it was tugging at my energy. It was pulling my energy downward. And um, I would think the strongest of us would uh, would would have trouble holding on to hope that everything was going to be fine when, you know, months are starting to pass and you're not seeing anything yeah, not just not an appreciable difference, but literally no difference whatsoever. Yeah, and it was it was tough, and um, you know I had to find a way to kind of spur myself through this because I realized, you know, I had to be there for him. I didn't know what was going on in the inside of his mind, in his brain. Um, I just knew I had to be there for him, and I used to tell him, uh, Josh, you know, hey buddy, you got a little bump on your head. We're in the hospital. Everything's going to be okay. Uh, the noises and different feeling, you know, things that you feel, that's just doctors and nurses. Everybody's here taking care of you. But, um, you know, I'm staying here until you can get better and we can go home together and you don't have to worry about everything. Everything's going to work out okay. And so I just kept talking to him, trying to, you know, if he could hear me yeah. to reassure him and strengthen his spirit from the inside out for him to continue to fight. And in part, I think I was talking to myself. Mm -hmm. I was going to ask you. Yeah. I'm trying to get myself through it. And, um, did you know, you, there was, a, did you ever feel ahead. Mark like it, like, like, um, like it wasn't going to work out? Did you ever think you were, you were going to lose him? Oh yeah. 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 Those, um, in that first week, you know, I was reassured once a doctor said, well, if he makes it seven days, then he's going to live. And I was like, okay, right. all right. I started watching the clock. And as soon as the day seven hit, I was like, hallelujah. <laughs> but that 
those first that first night, I went to sleep in the chair next to his bed holding his hand because I thought that if I could hold on to his hand and stay connected to his body, that somehow that would keep his spirit here. Yeah. And if I held on long enough and we could get through the night, then, you know, then, then in the morning we, he, I would wake up and he would still be alive. And so I, minute to minute, I was afraid he was going to slip away that first week. Absolutely. And after that, I was, I believe the doctors, I was like, well, he'll live, but now we don't know how he'll live. Right, right, right. We're not, we don't know what the quality of life is. I'm just picturing you um, holding his hand there and, you know, um, and, and being the father of a son myself, you know, I can imagine feeling like, you know, um, I, my hope is that my lifeblood gives you lifeblood, keeps you here, you know, through the night, through the next day, through the next day, you know, like, um, uh, I, I get it. I, I to, to the extent that the guy can, um, remotely, um, you're, you're explaining it really well. Cause I can imagine that that's what you want to do is you just want to hold him and know that he's still with you yep. on some yeah. level. Yeah, it was powerful. <laughs> yeah, man. Oh my gosh. Um, what a, what a harrowing, um, brutal, brutal experience, you know, um, just, just knowing about the accident itself, you know what I mean? Uh, your little guy and a hit and run with two semi trucks. I mean, my God, you know, the, the whole thing sounds just horrific up to this point. So, so where do we go from here? You know, um, he spent four months in a hospital and, uh, once he got out, he had 12 therapy appointments a week to attend. My God. Yeah. And so that went on for months and months. And then eventually it went down to nine appointments a week and then eventually to six therapy appointments and then eventually to three. Um, and this was over a period of years and he, he continued to improve over time, meaning he was able to start moving his body. He was able to start swallowing on his own. Uh, eventually, you know, he, he was able to stand up, but it was always a precarious situation. His brain was damaged so, so severely. Actually, the rehab doctor on the intake papers referred to him as he was neurologically devastated. And so the recovery process was complicated by the the severity of the injury. Mm-hmm. So I can imagine. So this was a, you know, this was a, a process that was going to take years, but in my mind, I thought, okay, if this takes a couple of years, that's okay. I can do that. And then after a couple of years, it, you know, you could see he still wasn't fully recovered. He was in a special education classroom. Uh, then I thought, okay, well, you know, three or four years, I can do that. Mm-hmm. And finally, you know, we get to about year five and year six and man, it started to get super, super hard. It was hard, but it, it, it was starting to take a toll on me emotionally. Um, because I thought, wait a minute, it's been five years. Shouldn't he be better by now? Sure. Right. Um, and and I, I'm amazed it took five years for it to, to really tax you emotionally because it seems brutal from day one. Um, but I can imagine after five years, you know, that's where we establish a new normal. We slip out of crisis at some point in there. 
And, um, and if you feel like, oh my gosh, we're still going through this and I don't see, I don't see light here, um, I can imagine that, that um, you're just not sure you can hang on for much longer. Well, part of my problem was is that I believed he would have a full recovery. Mm. I really, in my heart, you know, as I prayed on the way to the hospital, I believe I got an answer and it was, he's going to be okay. It's not going to be quick. It's not going to be easy. He's going to be okay. So, you know, what's quick, what's easy. I, I get easy. You know, mm. when somebody says it's not going to be easy. Okay. I spent 10 years in the military. I can do that. That I, you know, I trained in the martial arts and self-defense and, um, adrenal stress training. I can do that. Right. So I get hard. That's okay. I get hard, but mm -hmm. quick. Okay. Well, one year, two years, five years, you know, not quick. I think that's five years, but when it started to cross <laughs> that threshold, I was stressed. It was, it took a toll on me from day one, Yeah. but it really got hard as time got went on because my mind was framed up for a full recovery inside of five years. Got it. Inside of three years. Yep. But when that wasn't happening, I started to lose hope. Like I didn't know how I was going to get through the next day, let alone the next month. Wow. Wow. Yeah. So that's, that's harrowing because you've been strong and you, uh, through those first five years, you're, you've been strong, you've been ready and hopeful, right? I mean, and it's like yep. where hope starts to slip away. I've got to think that that becomes the toughest uh, stage of all of this. It, it was really, really difficult. Um, and now on the other side of this, what I discovered is that when hope disappears, so does action. And action is the key to creating whatever outcome you want in life. But when hope disappears, you just won't take action anymore. Like if I see a guy fall out of a boat in the middle of a lake, but I can't swim, I have no hope of saving him, so I won't take any action. That is so but true. But if I can yeah, and it's yeah. it's powerful. And and I realized my hope was slipping away yeah. because things weren't playing out the way I had thought that they would. And so luckily a friend of mine who has two special needs kids came to me and told me about a conference here in Nebraska for parents of kids with special needs. And um, I went to that conference. And when I was there, I saw people, none of the other people there had kids with brain injuries, but they were all dealing with some of them, you know, uh, more mild challenge of maybe ADD or ADHD sure. or something like that, um, high functioning autism. But then there were other families who had kids that had 27 surgeries and were dealing with spina bifida, cerebral palsy, um, massive de developmental delays. So it really I mean, ran really the gamut of talk. functioning, huh? Oh, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Okay. And just get, getting around other people who were who I could see were going through challenges too, and they were getting through it. It wasn't like it was a party every day and nobody pretended it was, but they were getting through it. And some of these people had been going on for 10, 15, 20 years. I discovered, well, if they can get through it, then I could too. And I discovered that I wasn't alone. Yeah. Because often when we're dealing with a challenge of any kind, we start to feel like we're the only one in the world having this experience and that nobody else understands. And that's just not true. It's, but that's kind of a trick that our mind plays on us. Absolutely. We believe, we believe we're suffering alone in so many circumstances 
and yours is unusual in in that you know it's it's um it's so traumatic but i'm also thinking like in order for you to go to that conference and correct me if i'm wrong here you had to you had to accept that your guy was now a special needs guy is that that joshua fit in this category was that was that a tough thing for you to swallow you know in order to to even be prepared to step into onto the floor of the conference or did you was that something that became very apparent to you at some point you know it was obvious to me prior to the conference that josh had special needs and was probably going to have special needs um, for some period of time my biggest challenge was the thought that i thought uh, was that he was going to be completely healed and this thing was going to be behind us yeah and I did have to come to terms with, and I love the phrase you used earlier, and, and it's a phrase that's in my vocabulary forever now, of a new normal. Mm-hmm. Like, it, it, this is just our normal. Yeah. And our normal is a boy who experienced a traumatic brain injury in a car accident um, with two semi-trucks when he's three and a half years old. And in spite of that, he's still alive. He's walking. He's talking. Things are not ideal. They're not perfect. They are challenging. Um, but you know what? Life is still good. Yeah. And Josh, is, term- and Josh is walking and talking. Yeah, absolutely. He walks, he talks, and when he walks into the room, he kind of lights it up because he's got this sweet, happy personality most of the time. Mm. Um, and, you know, there's so many good things that are going on. But, you know, he's never going to drive a car. He's right. never going to ride a bicycle. He's not going to surfboard or go skiing right. or roller skate. Um, he's always going to have to have somebody living with him, helping him to remember what to do and when and how to do it. But, um, you know, life is good. And we've, have, we've had beautiful and amazing experiences in spite of this accident. And in all honesty, some of our beautiful and amazing experiences are because of the accident. Wow, Mark, it's unbelievable to hear you say that. I was going to ask that, and I thought, "Ooh, that's an insensitive question," you know. But but you're saying no, absolutely, it's true. Like you know, that accident, uh, it was as regrettable as it is. Some of the good things in our lives are here because of it, huh? Absolutely. You know, we are um, our circle of. Uh, friends has grown tremendously. We're, you know, we have all of our friends that we had before, and now we have all kinds of new friends who are, you know, dealing with challenges because their kids have special needs. And it's a beautiful and amazing community of really, really heroic people um, who persevere in spite of a challenge that's never going to have closure. They, go ahead. Well, I was going to say, from from the outside, I think a lot of people would think, oh man, that's got to be so sad or depressing or something like that. And um, I suspect you're going to tell me, no, this group is inspiring and upbeat and fun and funny and um, grateful in ways that um, people with uh, kids who are just fall right in the middle of that normal curve um, could never experience. Am I close? Yeah. You know, we, we have a unique experience. Mm-hmm. Um, we still have kids like you have kids. Yeah. Our kids, uh, my son was different than your son when your son was three years old and my son was three years old. And so, um, these challenges, whether 
you know, it's cerebral palsy or autism or uh, a missing chromosome or a brain, brain injury, it doesn't really matter. Um, there's still an opportunity for great experiences and a beautiful life and love, uh, you know, to love your child and to be loved by them in their own unique way. Um, at the same time, everybody I know in this community uh, gets frustrated, gets angry, laments their situation. Sure. Um, but they have to reset and refocus because you can't get through the day any other way. You got to go start looking for where the sunshine is. Otherwise, <laughs> you're going to be drowning in your sorrows. But I see that with people who don't have kids with disabilities. Right, right. Such a brilliant point. So true. Um, I find myself hung up on something you said a couple of minutes ago um, when you stepped in to um, the, this group, you know, uh, the, and, and that conference for the first time. I wasn't alone. Um, and uh, it strikes me in knowing a little bit about your bio that um, on top of all the other hats you wear and have won, um, you've chosen another one, too, to kind of um, allow other people to feel that way. Yeah? Um, I, I guess I'm not following you Oh, I'm thinking 100%. specifically about your, your, your podcast and some of it. Oh, right. right. That's right. where I thought you were saying. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I, I came to about a year ago. I started to really think about, well, you know, when I was in that hospital, I felt absolutely alone, mm -hmm. absolutely alone. And there were so many people who were trying to help. But the emotional upheaval in your life of watching your son or daughter in that situation, it really it isolates you in one way because there's not too many people in your circle that are having that same experience. So I wanted to and I know not everybody has a kid with a tragedy in their life, right. but a lot of people do have tragedies, whether they grew up, um, you know, being violently abused or abandoned or some sort of accident or health issue, or it could have been a financial crisis or who knows what. I just wanted to start sharing other people's stories of the difficulties that showed up in their life at one point or another, how they came to ter terms with it because that's maybe the biggest struggle for all of us is coming sure. to terms with reality and then how they navigated through it and the wisdom that they gained. And I wanted to let other people know you're not alone. Yeah. Not only are you not alone, you've got what it takes to get through this. I know it because I did it in my unique circumstances. And there's millions and millions of other people who have overcome their difficulties, even if they're still, no complete closure with it. Sure. And I so honor that that work that you do because, you know, um, I love the idea of giving voice to people. And part of, part of the reason I do this podcast is for people to recognize that they're not alone in their, in their suffering. Um, and, um, and, I, and I think that's, so, that's such an important part of strength and healing. And, and so I truly honor um, you know, that work that you do as well. Is there, is there something for, for, for the people who are listening, who, um, are, get anxious when they see, um, a family with a special needs child and are inclined to like cross the street because they don't know what to say. Um, is there, is there a, a right or wrong way to approach you or to approach Joshua? Um, you know, or, and is approaching you the right thing? 
you know, I can't speak for everybody, but I love it when it happens. Mm. And I'll, I'll, I'll tell you a quick story. Please. We were, we were sitting in a Cracker Barrel restaurant a couple of years ago and uh, my son and I and my wife and we're eating our breakfast and this older gentleman comes over. He was in his probably mid to late seventies and he comes over and he taps me on the shoulder and he says, you know, I've been sitting over there watching your boy here eating your breakfast. And when I woke up this morning, I was in a foul mood and me watching your boy and looking at that smile on his face. And I don't know what he's going through. I just want to know, want you to know that my day has changed for the better. Mm. So that meant the world to me. Now that was a, you know, that was a very unique sure. moment, but we have people. Um, it, I always appreciate it when it comes from a pace of genuine caring and or curiosity. Yeah. I don't mind telling them, well, you know what? The reason he's wearing that street hockey helmet and he's 15 years old. Well, Josh, you tell them. And then Josh can actually share his story. It's actually an opportunity for him to interact and socialize with people out there. And Josh is actually kind of wears it as a badge of honor. Now, if I were to ask Josh, you know, how, how do you, how do you keep that smile on your face? You know, what, what, what do you know that we don't? Um, because I think most of us would be so terrified to be in your shoes, um, or angry or, or feel like why me? And yet, you know, um, you're describing a kid who, Sounds like a pretty upbeat guy for everything he's been through. And he is most of the time. But over the last two years, he's become painfully aware of the deficits in his mm -hmm. life yeah. and the differences. And um, about a year and a half ago, uh, it was the first time my son actually saw me shed a tear. But I was working on the book and he comes down into, to my office and says, Dad, I don't like having disabilities. And that was like getting punched right between the eyes for me. Oh, man. Um, you know, and that was the first time he saw me cry. Yeah. Because I, I get it. I get it. And I, you know, there's nothing I can do to fix it. Um, but the way we have over the last 18 to 24 months has uh, helped him reframe that in, into, you know what, Josh, you have a unique story. And you're one in seven billion. There's nobody else on the planet that I know of that can say they were in a hit and run accident with two semi trucks and survived oh. and is improving. Yeah, no kidding. I mean, you know, like in a way, like he is um, he is the miracle guy, isn't he? Yeah, he really is. And he doesn't he doesn't really see it as a positive. A lot of times, as a matter of fact, sure. I try to reframe it up as Josh, you know, I think we can look at this. It's really a gift. And after he heard that enough times, about six months ago, he says to me, dad, dad, it doesn't feel like a gift. Mm. So he has those moments, but I'm, you know, 95, 98% of the time he is happy. And I think it's because we really are trying to frame it up in as positive a way as is possible yeah. and say that there's still hope there's possibility there's opportunity. I don't know what those look like. They may not be exactly what you're hoping for, Josh. You know, he honestly, um, he told me after we watched a James Bond movie, 
uh, about a year ago. He says, Dad, when I grow up, I can do that for a job. You know, I don't know how to tell him. I don't know that that's going to, you know, son, that's that's kind of a stretch. And I'm not going to tell him right now because I don't want to squash his spirit. But we have to have those real talks, too. Right, right. I mean, so we can we can pretend like, OK, this is a success story because Josh survived and and here you are. And 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 yet it's an ongoing lifelong struggle. Right. And there are limitations that he's going to have to to live with. He gets to live and that's, and that's great. But, the, but it's not, it's not all roses. No, it's not. And, um, and there's tough conversations ahead. Yeah. I, I know it, you know, but that's okay because we'll, we'll figure it out. We'll right. just figure it out. Is he ever just a teenager? Is he ever just a pain in the neck? Like, you know, oh. <laughs> like some of the oh, teenagers my. I work with, you know, he gets up and first thing in the morning, he is, is like ribbing me nonstop. <laughs> so my mother was visiting one time and she, um, uh, we would come home after picking him up from school and she would have a, a little piece of dessert for us. One day there's two pieces of cake. She pushes one in front of me and one in front of him. The one in front of him has frosting. Mm -hmm. Mine doesn't. <laughs> and so I'm like, Ma, what's the deal? She says, what? I says, well, he has his has frosty mine doesn't now i'm playing this up for his benefit right but, and she says well i ran out i was like ma well how come he gets the frosting <laughs> and he looks at mom and he says yeah grandma how come i get the frosting and she looks at him and she says well josh that's because i love you but and she stops in the middle of it and i says ma go ahead just say it. <laughs> we all know it. Just say it. She says, well, because I love you best. And she starts laughing. And so now my kid will tell me that story he, literally every single day. <laughs> yep. So he's a teenager. <laughs> we know that much at least. Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> um, uh, we've only got a couple minutes left, but if, if there's something that you want my listeners to know here, that we haven't touched on, what would that be? Is there anything we're missing that you feel like is, is really truly important for um, somebody to hear? You know, I think, um, I think we've really hit the most important points, but could I anchor a few of them? I wish you would. Okay. One is you're not alone and you have what it takes. It, you, it doesn't always feel like you have what it takes, but you do. And that you always have to maintain hope because when you lose hope, you won't take action. But there is, you know, the world is still filled with opportunity and possibility. And we need to keep putting one foot in front of the other because we never know when the next breakthrough is coming. And when I talk to my uh, students, my Kung Fu students, mm -hmm. I might ask them a bunch of eight year olds, well, how many, how many times is a lot of times to try something? Hmm. And a lot of times they come up with the number, well, 50 or a hundred. And I say, okay, so a hundred times is a lot of times to try something. And let's say that you try to learn this kick a hundred times and it doesn't come out right and you quit. But what if I was to tell you that if you would have done it three more times, that would have been your breakthrough, but you quit at a hundred instead of 104. And so just those two or three or four more steps often gets us the breakthrough and the opportunity to experience some level of success. 
not perfection, not my struggle is completely solved and all the pain in my life is going to go away, but that there's a turning point or an improvement point. And so my, I guess my, you know, what for me to sum it up would be to say, never give up. You keep putting one foot in front of the other and you never know three more steps and you may get your big turnaround. Hmm. I, I, I just love that. And, um, and, and I, I'm, I'm so sorry for what's happened for you and your family. Um, and I have to say in the same breath that I know that a lot of people are benefiting from that and from your strength, Mark. Um, and so uh, I so appreciate the work that you do and that you reach out. You become, uh, in one hour, you become one of my heroes, man. And I'm not kidding. Um, and, uh, and, and your Josh sounds like, uh, a spirited guy, and I love that I, the idea that you you don't know you don't know where that next breakthrough's coming through. So you got to hang in there, and you got to have hope. And in the meantime, use that community around you, use those people around you. You are not alone. I I, I love those uh, those anchors. I'm glad you I'm glad you went back and uh, and just put a put a punctuation mark b- beside each of them. Um, so thank you, then thank you for being so forthcoming here. Well, I re- really, really appreciate it. It's been an honor and a privilege to be here, and I, I appreciate the work you do. I've listened to a couple of episodes, um, knowing I was going to have the opportunity to be your guest, and I really love the work you're doing. And everybody's got anxiety, you know. It's just how are we going to deal with it? Amen to that, sir. Absolutely. So, so if I uh, if I want to reach out to to Mark Gablowski, whether it's for uh, I, w- I want to learn Kung Fu or Judo. I, um, I want to listen to your podcast. I want to buy your book when it comes out. How do I find you? Uh, you can go to markgoblowski.com and uh, find me there. That's M-A-R-K-G-O-B-L-O-W-S-K-Y.com. And if you go to markgoblowski.com slash undo anxiety, I'll send you one chapter to my book for free. Hey, hey, how about that? All right. <laughs> Excellent. Um, Mark, thank you so much for sharing your story with us. Um, it, it is invaluable, and um, and I do not take um, your time lightly, um, just like those of the people listening. So thank you once again. My pleasure. Thank you. Okay. And, uh, and folks, you can, uh, as always, find um, the Undo Anxiety podcast on iTunes, Podbean, Stitcher, LiveLeadPlay.com, and WGN+. Plus. If you or someone you know would like to be a guest on the podcast or you have an idea for the podcast, please feel free to write me at John G. Duffy at DrJohnDuffy.com. On behalf of Mark and myself, thank you so much for listening, and I will talk to you next time. Thanks again. Bye-bye.